What we'd like to, I think, do tonight, Sandy, is what we're looking at, the theme of tonight, is leading a church into a Holy Spirit-filled culture. And every one of us here are involved in leadership in church. And then we'd like to hear about your experience, what we can learn from what you've learned. The good and the bad, the rough and the smooth, the blessing and the pain. And then we're going to offer prayer as well, because we can pray for one another. There's a few people who we've allocated for prayer, but because we recognize you're here because you're already in leadership, leadership maybe we can just pray for one another. Pray for each other on tables. We could do something radical, like uh, this table could pray for that table. Who knows? Or we could come out for prayer. But we haven't really got an agenda to say this is how we're going to do it. We're just open to what God will do amongst us. So, Sandy, welcome. Welcome. And I suppose what would be good is just to tell us something about your life story. How long have you got? Yeah. And then something about your journey in ministry as well. Is that working, Sandy, now? That's right. Thank you. Tell us your story, Sandy. Our story, my story. Well, good evening. Uh, is that on, really? Yeah. It is? Yeah. Thank you very much indeed. It's lovely to be with you. Lovely to be with you, my, and my wife, Annette, and I. Uh, we haven't come very far, actually. We only live in Albra at the moment. Um, church and ministry. Um, well, I started life as a, as a barrister, as some of you may know. I was a lawyer for 10 years. During that time, um, I came to faith through a combination of my wife and the Holy Spirit. And that, I can assure you, is a very powerful combination. <laughs> and um, she came to faith her first term at St. Andrew's University. She heard the gospel in a way that she understood for the first time. She gave her life to the Lord. And for 10 years, she lived the life of what I would call a, a traditional Christian Union Christian. And I'm not being rude about that at all. But she couldn't uh, talk to people about Jesus. She didn't pray with people. She found it difficult, uh, the Christian life. And after 10 years, she was prayed for by a lovely man uh, called Edgar Trout, who had a ministry in the West Country at that time. And he laid hands on her and prayed for her to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I don't know what the correct liturgical expression for that is, but she just took off. <laughs> and she organized with her mother uh, an evangelistic weekend. She took <coughs> the Slough Diocesan Center, which doesn't sound very exciting, but actually a lovely Elizabethan um, building. And she sent a postcard to everybody she knew, saying, bring a Bible and a tennis racket and come and hear about Jesus. And I was one of those. I didn't really know her as well as all that. We weren't remotely engaged or, or anything like that. I knew her brother, really. But I knew her. And I was one of the first to get the postcard, and I was certainly the first to reply, which she found, for some reason, that will become apparent, I think, rather encouraging. But I thought it was very kind of her. And uh, I knew, I was 27 years old, I knew there was an agenda, but I'm ashamed to say that I thought I could probably cope. I could find one of the things that she recommended me to bring, and I borrowed the other. And down I went 
to um, this weekend. And <clears throat> I heard the gospel again for the first time that I think I had. I'd been into Christian school. I went to chapel. We had to every day, twice on Sunday. But I hadn't heard the gospel, I didn't think, in a way that I understood it in that weekend. And uh, <clears throat> it set me thinking. I didn't give my life to the Lord that weekend. But I spent about, uh, about a year, really, uh, working through some of these things. At one point uh, on, during that year, I used to have to travel by underground, and, and I got into the underground train at Sloane Square, and the train stopped somewhere, I don't know, in a tunnel somewhere. And all I could hear was a sort of hum of a, of a generator underneath there. And there was a, a young chap opposite me. He was three away from me. There were three people, two, three people between me and him. And I knew he'd got keen on Christian things. And I thought I was probably in for a roughish ride. But again, I thought, well, if I just sort of keep smiling, it'll all be all right. And sure enough, in the silence, he looked across at me through these people. The train was absolutely packed, the underground train. He looked across at me and he said, do you realize that Jesus is alive? So I thought, oh, this was at half past quarter to eight in the morning. Uh, so I thought, I'd better deal with this quite quickly or it's going to get out of hand. So I said, um, yeah, <laughs> yes, I do. So the train moved on and uh, it stopped again. I don't know kept getting me stopped. Other place. And he again looked across at me through these people. He was totally unembarrassed and unembarrassed, really. And uh, he raised his voice and he said, does that make any difference to your life? And uh, by this time, everybody on the train was involved in this conversation. I felt they were taking bets. They were all on my side. I knew that. But there wasn't one of them who was going to help. And uh, I felt, as I say, they were taking bets about how I was going to get out of this, <laughs> looking over their papers and things. So I said with some show of confidence. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And he was going further on into the city and I got out of the temple where I was working. And uh, <clears throat> as I came up into the fresh air onto the embankment there, two things really worried me about that conversation. One was I couldn't think of any difference that Jesus made to my life at all. In the same way as, uh, you know, I couldn't think of any difference that William the Conqueror made having won the Battle of Hastings. Although if you're a lawyer, you'll know it's made a huge difference, actually. But I won't weary you with that tonight. But I couldn't. And the second thing that worried me was I couldn't think why I'd felt it necessary to say yes if I meant no. And I resolved uh, never to get into that position again if I could help it. And I bought a new translation of the Bible, the New Testament. <clears throat> I was doing a long case in Liverpool at the time. And I remember when the court rose at four, I like to think I did the work that had to be done for the following day. And then I devoured this Bible, New Testament. And I, I read about Jesus. And he was so different from the Jesus that I had understood Jesus to be like. I think I'd picked up the impression somewhere that Jesus was, you know, from, you probably you are gloriously spared here with stained glass windows. There's room for one or two there if you wanted to. But so often Jesus in the stained glass windows is surrounded by squirrels and rabbits and that sort of thing. And I, I couldn't quite identify with that at all. When I read the New Testament, I came across Jesus who was a leader amongst leaders. Just astonishing. Dealt with diseases if he had to. 
Disasters, if he had to, storms and winds and rains and things. Demons, if he had to. And, of course, death, if he had to. And I think it's true to say, if I may put it reverently, I just fell in love with Jesus. I thought that is the most extraordinarily wonderful man. And when um, Annette asked us all again, uh, at least everybody again, she knew, back for the second weekend, I went with great uh, excitement. And I gave my life to the Lord. Uh, very happily, just not because I had a crisis. I think my mother thought I'd had a crisis in some way in my life. But I hadn't at all. I, I came, gave my life to the Lord because I recognized the truth of Jesus and the claim that he has on our lives. Um, created us and recreated us. And I thought, isn't that exciting? And I remember thinking, you know, if God made me and loves me, then the sooner we get together, the better. And Annette was so keen. This was the question you asked, was it? Keep, keep me right. You've still got a microphone. Annette was so keen that I shouldn't have to go through those 10 years that she had to, that she took me to a meeting of the Fountain Trust. Don't anybody here old enough to remember the Fountain Trust? Michael Harper, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, started Fountain Trust. And um, there was a meeting going on at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Spurgeon's old stamping ground. It was in a part of London I'd never been to in my life. I didn't know where it was, but I knew there was a meeting and Annette asked me to go. David Duplessis was speaking. He was a South African who had a tremendous ministry at that time with the, particularly the Roman Catholic Church. Spent a lot of time in, he was American, spent a lot of time, South African, sorry, he spent a lot of time in the Vatican uh, and he kept sort of being sent for by cardinals and he was all nervous always about when they, when they invited him to go and see me. He thought he was going to get into trouble. But actually, um, they just wanted to find out about life because their religion didn't satisfy them. It was dry and um, uninspired and they would invite him. Uh, when he finally got to meet the Pope, uh, some of you may know David de Plessy, the Pope greeted him by saying, apparently, ah, Mr. Pentecost, <laughs> which is what he was. And he spoke to us about the Holy Spirit. And uh, at the end of it, he said, uh, if you'd like to, me to pray for you, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, then come to the front. I used to pray with individuals. I don't do that now because there are too many people. I just asked them to come to the front, and I pray for them to be filled with the Spirit, and they're filled with the Spirit. And uh, he looked at a number of verses, including Luke 11, that lovely one where Jesus says that if you ask, you receive. And I hadn't been a Christian long enough to wonder whether Jesus really meant that. Because as you know, we find it so hard to believe. Jesus says it six times, actually. If you ask, you receive. And if I, think if I had anything to say to anybody tonight, I would recommend that and uh, reinforce that, that verse. If you knock, it will be opened. If you seek, you will find. And something within us always says, well, it's the devil, of course, himself is busy saying, yeah, yeah, of course. Of course, but not me. He won't fill me with the Holy Spirit. Fill him with the Holy Spirit. Oh, for he's ordained, or he's a vicar, or he's a minister, or he's a pastor, or he leads a group, or he does the food, or whatever, but, but not me. And that's a lie. Because Jesus then turns it the other way around, you remember, because he can see the look on their faces, and he says, for everyone who asks... <laughs> What happens to everyone who asks? I love your enthusiasm. Is that actually true? Everyone who asks receives. So 
at the end, he said, if you'd like to come forward now, I'll pray for you. And we were right at the back. I don't know if you've been to the Metropolitan Temple. Have you recently? It's a huge building, thousands, built for Spurgeon to preach. And, of course, he affected millions of people. And we were right at the back, and Annette knew uh, the, what I call the Christian Mafia in London at that time, because she'd been a Christian for 10 years. I didn't know any of them. And we kept passing them, and they kept saying to her, how are you? Hello, nice to see you. And who's this? And all that sort of thing. And I remember saying to her at one point, come on. I said, we have got to get to the front. And I was very interested in my response, because um, I'm Scots, as some of you may know, and we are very reserved as a race. I believe the Welsh are worse, but I don't can come here to cause difficulties along those fronts. We are very reserved. And I was very interested in my own response because I didn't want to hold back. I wanted to get, I couldn't wait to get to the front because something within me said, I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I stood there and he said, well, if you ask, you receive. And so I asked, so I dared to believe that I'd received. I didn't know what happened when you received. I didn't know what to expect at all. There was a party of nuns in front of me. And as I often say, they were, they were dressed as nuns, so it wasn't a word of knowledge or anything. And, I, and they started making um, what I call cheerful farmyard noises. I know now that they were singing in the spirit. But they looked so peaceful and so happy. I wasn't worried about anything. I didn't know what was going on. But um, it's funny, isn't it, that until you've been in the church for some time, you sort of expect the Christian faith to involve the supernatural. And if you're not careful, you begin to get used to settling for um, something less. I went home that night. I was sharing a flat with two other friends I, I knew at university. I had a room of my own. And I went onto my knees. And I started trying to tell the Lord how much I loved him. And um, I started, Lord, you know... I just want to tell you that I love you. I was overwhelmed with love. I still think that the mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit is love. All the gifts and ministries we can talk about, they're wonderful. Praise God. I, I, I'm not a classic Pentecostalist, not that it matters really what I am or whether I'm not. By that I mean I think you can get to heaven without ever having prayed in tongues. But I can't think why you'd want to. <laughs> get to heaven without having prayed in tongues. But St. Paul goes out of his way to say that the mark of being filled with the Spirit is not, though I speak in the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I'm nothing. Annette and I were at the leadership conference in the Albert Hall this last week, uh, Nikki and the Holy Trinity team there. One of the most astonishing sights I never thought I'd live to see was on the stage, Justin Welby and Cardinal Vincent Nichols, the head of the Catholic Church in the UK, the head of the Anglican Church worldwide, sitting in chairs side by side and just expressing that love and that care and that concern for one another, for their other denominations, for the people involved in the world. I thought, what a wonderful, a wonderful thing that is. Because they just love each other. And love, I think, is the real mark of the Spirit. So there I was, and I was saying, Lord, I really love you. And then I thought, that's not what I mean. I thought, Lord, I really, really love you. And then I thought, that's not what I mean. And the whole irony of the situation hit me because, as I've mentioned, I was a barrister. And large sums of money had been spent trying to help me to be articulate. I'm not asking you to say whether they were well spent or not. I'm just saying they were spent. And I couldn't even tell God how much I loved him. 
And into my head came this, these words, uh, what you need is another language, isn't it? I said, Lord, that's exactly what I need. And I began to pray in another language, in tongues or in the spirit or whatever you like to call it. And on, on, on and off, I've never stopped. So I was born into, as it were, a, a church experience that was Pentecostal. And theologians can argue as much as they like, but our theology is always tempered by our experience. So when people tried to persuade me, as they did later on, that that wasn't a valid experience or it wasn't right or it wasn't this, it doesn't wash. And sooner or later, we have to come to a decision for ourselves about many things. We read the Bible, and somebody says it means this. Somebody else says it means that. I don't want to fall out with them. I don't want to part company with them. I don't want to break fellowship with them. But I have to say, Lord, I don't see it that way. So thanks to my wife and thanks to the Holy Spirit, there was no question in my mind that the New Testament church was a Pentecostal church with a small p. It expected the activity of the Spirit. It expected the church to be run by the Spirit of God. And... Um, about four years later, if this is still the question that you were asking, um, I felt drawn out of the law. It puzzled me because ever since I was eight, I wanted to be a barrister. I bought every second-hand book of trials and uh, all that sort of stuff. And, and, I just, and I loved it. I'd go back to it if I had to. I couldn't, of course, but I, 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 I loved it. But I felt drawn out. And it interested me. And I felt the Lord just saying, well, because I did not really nothing but criminal work, and I longed to be able to talk to these wretched people. Uh, you know, you'd read the papers the night before, and then the following morning or whenever it was, you'd go down into the cells and there. When you're reading the papers, you think, how could anybody do that? And you go into a cell and you see some diminutive man or woman who was as puzzled as anybody else was as to why they did that. And I longed to try and reach them at the top of the cliff and not have to wait until they got to the bottom. And I still, something of my heart is still in that work. Uh, because, well, I think, but I'm jumping ahead a little bit, I think that's where Jesus would be, actually. John Wesley used to say, we must go to, the, to those who need us, and we must go to those who need us most. And I, I just felt drawn out of it, so I said to Annette, well, she married a barrister, and she had some expectation of being able to eat, bring up our children and things. And I said to her, you know, I think, what do you think? And uh, in some ways, of course, <laughs> she was responsible for the whole thing. So, um, and I, I, I thought the Church of England would say, no, no, you stay where you are and get on with what you're doing. I went to see the vicar. He couldn't see me for six weeks, which I found difficult to understand. I still do, actually. I don't know what he was doing, the dear man, but he's dead now, so... Um, <laughs> Well, the most important thing that we have to do in this world is to make sure the succession is accounted for. You look at every young person in your congregation. They're the people that we need to invest in. Invest in, invest in, invest in. Otherwise, we're going to end up with a congregation of 80-year-olds. I'm increasingly interested in 80-year-olds. But... I think we need, to, we need to invest in these young things. Anyway, so he did see me, and then he said, oh, you go and see the bishops. I went to see the bishop. The bishop said, oh, he said, you go to college. So I went to college, and, uh, and then he said, uh, and by that time, I was a member. I had been a member of Holy Trinity Brompton because I lived quite near there. And, uh, and in those days, if you, if you came through the doors of Holy Trinity Brompton and you looked 
under the age of, well, I was going to say 90, but that's a slight exaggeration. Uh, certainly, if you look younger, you were on the church council before you'd left the building. And uh, so I was on the church council of Holy Trinity uh, uh, when I was converted. Actually, it's very helpful if a council are converted, as you probably know. So I came from Holy Trinity Brompton, and one of the reasons that I'm regarded with some suspicion in some circles that I'm not inviting that is that I've never left it, because the bishop asked me to go back to Holy Trinity Brompton. I did two curacies there, one for five years, one for four years, and then I changed places with my predecessor, and uh, he, uh, he wanted a slightly quieter life. And I said, well, okay, I'll answer the letters if you'll do the teaching and the preaching. And that's what he did, and the arrangement was very good until his wife got ill. Uh, he's still alive, John Collins, and he knows more about Anglican renewal than I think anybody else in the country, probably, in the world. He's 89. Anglican renewal. He had a number of curates. I'm the exception. David Watson was his curate. David McInnes was his curate. He had all sorts of wonderful people. All because, I think all because, at his parish in Gillingham in Kent, he invited um, Corrie ten Boom to come down there. Does that mean anything to you? Corrie came down to, and she prayed for them all to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, as she uh, was, the train was pulling out of Gillingham, she went, her head popped out of the window, and she, with a great smile, she said to them, now, she said, nestle, don't wrestle. I never met her, but I've listened to a number of her tapes, and a wonderful woman, again, the ministry of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So they started nestling, and not wrestling, and... Um, Huge things began to happen. And um, then I, I took over from there. And at the same time, actually, it was unquestionably, I think, um, the kindness of God, his generosity and generosity of spirit. He has a plan, as you know. And um, my first curate, <coughs> just to sort of square the circle on the ministry of the spirit, my first curate was a very... Uh, respectable, conservative, evangelical. And again, I'm not being rude about that, but he, he was. On his deathbed, he asked me to go and see him. He said, please don't pray for my healing because I'm ready to go. <laughs> so on that basis, I was allowed to go and talk to him. He told me, I invited you to come onto the staff because I could see what God is doing worldwide in things of the Holy Spirit. And I didn't have the confidence to introduce it to the congregation. I understood that because he was the treasurer, I think, of an organization called NIAC, which was the National Evangelical Anglican Congress. Not since the Sanhedrin has there been such an important body in the country. And it's hard. It's hard to change, actually, after a bit and say, I think we've been on the wrong track. And he invited me and said, would you please minister to anybody you can, pray for people wherever you can, and uh, his motto was, you get on with the work and I'll explain to them what you really meant, which is what I think <laughs> the job of all of us who are slightly senior in church life, that is our job. Let everything grow. Let everybody do whatever everybody does, particularly if they're young and uh, have the energy and the enthusiasm and the excitement and the, and the, and the grace, um, and then we can explain what they, what they really meant, if necessary. But that was a wonderful deal. And I said to him, well, I will never teach what I know you can't teach. And he said, no, you, you get on with the, the ministry. And I, I think I kept hold of that because one of the things that I 
I do often find myself speaking about at younger gatherings of mainly Anglican, but any clergy I can get my hold on, is the biblical aspect of loyalty. And in the outside world, it is almost non-existent in my uh, experience. In the city, in the world of work, loyalty. Now everybody moves about, they do what they like. And in the church, it's not an option. I'm always astonished at how David was so ill-served by his staff. Because David was the epitome of loyalty, as you'll know, to Saul. And he lived through all of that. And I've, I've been so, so fortunate. Nicky Gumbel is loyalty personified. And uh, I could travel all over the world, and I knew that there was nobody saying anything wrong or bad, nobody conspiring, nobody plotting, nobody starting stuff within the congregation about the ways that church could be run better. There are a hundred and different ways of running a church, but there has to be somebody who takes responsibility before the Lord for the way in which the church is run. And if the ministry of the Spirit gets going, that is particularly important, I think. So I was very, very well supportive. I only once let Raymond down on that was when Annette, um, bless her heart, invited Jackie Pullinger to come and speak to her wives group. And I'm ashamed to say I didn't think a wives you know, group. It was long, many, many years ago, long before Jackie was quite as well known as she is now. Um, but as, as you probably know, even then, if you came within 200 yards of Jackie, you'd be singing in the spirit. You, you just can't help it because that's what she does. And uh, I, I'm ashamed to say, I am ashamed to say, it was Annette's wise group, and I didn't think really that, you know, I didn't know what went on at wise groups, but I didn't think it was, um, well, I thought you'd probably have some coffee and then some sanctified gossip and then perhaps a little talk and then some prayer and then lunch. Babies to be collected and that, you know. Well, of course, with Jackie and Annette's wise group, the whole, whole place took off, and the whole of London was buzzing with the news that everybody in that room had been filled with the Holy Spirit. It was just like Pentecost. They were all singing in the Spirit. They danced out of an, our sitting room way off to where they come from. They picked up the babies singing. Everybody was singing. It was the most wonderful, wonderful thing. And Raymond said to me, you didn't tell me that Jackie was coming. I said, well, I'm so sorry, but I, I had no idea. Apart from that, we stuck to the bargain. And Raymond allowed me to uh, lay hands on anything that moves. One of the rules on Alpha, as some of you may know, is that we lay hands on everything that moves. And uh, I said that at a conference once when we were in uh, Northern Ireland, and Adrian McCartney, who was a youth leader there, he, forgive me if you are Irish, this is just how I remember him speaking, he shouted back from the chairs, he said, over here, we'll lay hands on everything that isn't moving, to get it moving. <laughs> So we still have that rule that we lay hands on everything that moves and everything that isn't moving and see what happens. And uh, while we're talking about the ministry of the Spirit in that way, it seems to me it's a very good encouraging rule. Um, to let everything grow. Most, most, I think, church people cut things off before we've seen what they're going to turn into. If you move into a new house with a new garden, my encouragement to you, everybody says, isn't it? It's let it, everything grow for a year till you see what's in there. And start pulling everything out before you can see. Same with church life. Let it grow. You may not like the look of it at the moment. Let's see what happens. Then after a bit, you can start reforming, encouraging, trimming a little bit here and encouraging a little bit there. Because most of us need encouragement. We don't need to be, um, to, to be discouraged. We need to be encouraged to go for it and to do whatever the Lord is calling us to do.
So then, are you still there? I am. Making notes, Sandy. Making notes. So, making it grow, just tell us about um, what you had to trim and why you trimmed it and what you learned through that. Well, I'll tell you what I think. I don't know that I'm right, but I'll tell you what I think. I, I, I really don't know I'm right. You must decide that. But if you're going to introduce anything new into a church, anything that, uh, that needs encourage, uh, explaining, I think, whether it's this sort of worship or this sort of ministry, laying hands, whatever it is. See, I inherited a very conservative church. We had about 170 people. We sang matchings, which you won't have heard of, from the Book of Common Prayer, which was first published in 1662 and unchanged since then, and heard it in Gibraltar. We sang matins every Sunday morning since 1827 when the church was built. Not even Hitler could stop us singing matins <laughs> Sunday morning. And the only trouble with that was that there wasn't a young person inside. And that's tricky because, as you may know, again, the good is always the enemy of the best. And uh, we had to make one or two changes, not for the sake of change, but for the sake of encouraging the younger generations to get into church. I feel deeply about that, as you probably gathered. But if you're going to introduce, introduce any change at all, you need three things for it. And uh, I would encourage you not to lose sight of them. Number one, you need a theology. Why are we doing this? Because I remember years ago, you know, people would talk about um, a new vicar who was applying for a job, or a new pastor applying for a job, or a new minister applying for a job. Uh, what's the issue about things of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit? Oh, well, they're very sympathetic. Sympathetic is the kiss of death. We do not want sympathy. We want wholehearted allegiance to the theology that we've got into our heads from the Bible. Amen? We're not sympathetic to what Jesus says. We are totally committed to what Jesus says. So you need a theology for it. Otherwise, you'll back off the moment somebody says boo. Why do we do that sort of worship? Well, I don't know if you know why you do this sort of worship, but I know why we did that sort of worship, because we're looking for some way of expressing our intimacy with God. Number one value of our church was intimacy with God. Intimacy with God. I was taken to task when I first used that expression. A lovely woman said to me, you know, please don't use that word, because we don't use it to mean that, you know. She, she, she assumed it was an Americanism, which it is. It's also an Engli English word as well. Um, but, but we don't use it for that, she said. So I started talking about the closest possible relationship with God. But actually, I gave up because intimacy is what I do mean. And so does the Bible. That's why the Song of Songs is such a key book. <laughs> I don't know when you last preached on the Song of Songs, but I love the Song of Songs because I discovered that our forefathers... The old divines regarded the Song of Songs as the central book of the Bible. Now, when I heard that, I thought, oh, well, why isn't that we don't preach about it? Speak I never heard a single so sermon on it at Theological College. Because it's poetry, of course. In this modern computer age, we're not very keen on poetry. And it talks about various intimate aspects of life, breasts and things. And as church goes, we're not supposed to talk about breasts and things. <laughs> what he's talking about is Solomon's relationship with his wife, of course. But by extension, all, everyone has agreed he's speaking about Jesus' relationship to his church. Intimacy. 
And if we don't provide an opportunity for intimacy with God, then we're never going to attract this generation, this young generation, who's looking for relationships that really last, that they can put everything into, a real relationship. Not just um, talking about it. They want to experience the love of God. That's why Alpha is such a success. We have a whole weekend, as you know, on the Holy Spirit. We pay for people to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They experience the love of God. St. Paul talks about the love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts. It comes into our hearts and comes out again. It's love, intimacy. Now, that is why we have this sort of worship, as you probably know. Because on Jordan's bank, the Baptist cries a wonderful hymn, but it doesn't allow us to express love to God. It doesn't allow us. And we noticed in those early days that there's a huge difference between singing a song like, We love you, Lord, and the Holy, and Holy Spirit descends. And we lift our voices. Well, we must give opportunity for that. For the, the, the people to have a chance to join in, to sing. And during that worship time, I, I remember one Sunday evening, a young man came up to me and he said, all the way through the worship, I think I was disappointed that it wasn't through the talk and it wasn't through other aspects of the service, but it was actually through the worship. He said to me, all through the worship, I was wrestling because I wanted to give my life to Christ, but I didn't want to give up my girlfriend. And I didn't want to give up my job. And I didn't want to be sent to Africa as a missionary. And this, actually, the Africans are sending missionaries here now. But that was going on in his heart all the time. And he said, towards the end of the worship, he said, I heard this voice saying, why don't you give in and we'll both win? And he said to me, do you think that could be God? I said, well, do you know anybody else who allows you to think you've won if you give in? He said, no, I don't think I do. So we both agreed it was God. But it comes because we have been led by the, 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 the musicians. We've been led into the presence of God. And in the presence of God, we are allowed to bask in his love, to give love and to receive love. So number one value of our church was intimacy with God. And number two value is intimacy with one another, which is why all the structures of the church were geared. We had three groupings in our church, the celebration, the congregation, and the cell, or whatever like you call it, names you call it. But I, I then discovered that that's church growth language all over the world. The Fuller Seminary, and, you know, Pete Wagner, the professor of church growth, talks about it all over the world. A big group, a middle-sized group, and a little group. And I used to think that was an optional extra. I now think it's absolutely essential because they each have a part to play in our pursuit of intimacy with God and with one another. Of course, we have to take that slowly. We can't be intimate at five minutes' notice with one another. But we can gradually get to know each other and begin to grow together uh, in our love for one another. Because as you know, um, the book of Ephesians that Paul wrote reminds us that Jesus is coming back for his church. I don't want to let you down too quickly. But it's not for individuals, really. It's the church that he loves. And often as I think of it, you know, if God is your father and 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 God is my father, that makes us brothers and sisters, right? <coughs> Again, I love your enthusiasm for that idea. <laughs> and we are going to spend eternity together. You like that idea? Eternity together. Just look around. You're going to spend eternity 
with these people. And the time really to get used to that idea is now. Which is why I begin to, you know, begin to, uh, when Peter, in his letter, you remember, talks about it as stones, not bricks, because all bricks are the same size and the same shape and the same color. We're not like that. We're stones, living stones, with edges and prickly bits and corners. And, and we begin to feel it when we get closer to one another in our groups. And in our groups, we begin to, it begins to rub off. And we begin to understand. We understand the pastor and his funny little ways. And, and he begins to understand us and our funny little ways. And we begin to think it'll be quite fun, not just to live together in heaven, but to live together now, here. Uh, you remember they used to have that old rhyme, didn't they? To, to dwell above with saints in love. What happiness, what glory. To dwell on earth with saints below. Well, that's a different story. <laughs> so we get together. So intimacy with God, intimacy with one another. But you need a theology for that. In a theology for the ministry of the Spirit. That is where we're going. And as soon as you're confident, if you're the pastor of the church, or if you're leading the church, or you think you're leading the church, which may or may not be the same thing, as soon as you can, you can't straight away when you arrive, or people may take fright. As soon as you can, and, and I was hugely helped, we were hugely helped by John Wimber. Because he had this, what he called his uh, sign on the bus. As soon as you can, you tell people where we're going. Because the traditional, I, I, I exclude anybody else from this observation, but the, 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 the traditional Anglican sense, in a sense, and I'm paraphrasing and simplifying, oversimplifying, but the bishop on the whole would send a young man like I was in those days into a congregation and just say, dear boy, keep them all happy. Then they won't be writing to me all the time, so it's in brackets. Keep them all happy. Well, you can't keep them all happy except by the lowest common denominator. So you can't introduce any change. You can't introduce any fresh direction. You can't. You know, I was told as a curate, if you want to change anything like the piano, you move it half an inch every Sunday. <laughs> Nobody notices. And by the, time, by the time it's across the other side of the room, they all thought it was there in the first place. <laughs> but we haven't got that sort of time. And um, so uh, as soon as you can, uh, John Wimber used to say, you put the sign on the bus and you tell them where we're going. Now, if you go to, I imagine, forgive me, but if you go to Lowestoft Station, the front of the train or the board will tell you where the train's going. You then have a decision of whether you get onto it or not. It's the same with the church as soon as you can. And I said to them, look here, let's stop arguing about it because we had a, we had a sort of discussion all the time in the church council. We had a sort of high church retired colonel who didn't really approve of anything that we were doing. We had a retired missionary from Zambia. She was absolutely sweet. She wanted the church to move this way. They always wanted to move that way. Anyway. And we were left sort of just, I was left smiling. <laughs> so providing you change nothing, you have a quiet life. But Jesus didn't die for a quiet life for us. He didn't die to bring peace. He came to get his will done on earth through his church. And that means not just churches full of people, but people full of the Holy Spirit. Because that's what's going to change the world. So I said to them, oh, let's stop arguing. And I tell you what, I tell you what. The New Testament church was a church that believed in things of the Holy Spirit. That's the direction we're going in. It'll take us time. 
I had to say that to the young people or they wouldn't have stayed because they were waiting to see whether we were going to change or not. And if we weren't going to change, they were going off somewhere else to the local community church, which is wonderful. They'll get to heaven that way, but we won't get that money on the way. So I wanted, <laughs> I wanted them to stay with us <laughs> so that we could change the church, get the fucking humming and fizzing, because we've got hundreds of empty churches up and down the country waiting to be filled. We don't have to build another one. Just fill it up. So I said, that's where we're going. But I tell you what, we're going, it's not like the night we went to Birmingham by way of Beachy Head, do you remember? I said, we're, we're going to move in that direction, but we're going very, we'll go, but that's where we're going. To a full-blown, Holy Spirit-inspired ministry Anglican church. And um, they all began to feel nervous, except the one. You know, church life is rather like a, a, rather like a train, I often think. You know, there are people at the front who are pouring on more fuel, whatever the fuel is nowadays, hoping this train will go faster and faster and faster. And there are people in the back in the guard's van who are busy turning around every lever to see if they can stop this thing as quickly as they can because it's getting out of hand. And there are people running up and down the corridor, not quite sure from one Sunday to the next or one day to the next, uh, which camp they really are in. And, and I remember saying to them, you know, every, every ship has needs, sails and a keel. And if you're hesitant about the direction of going, then you're the keel. But we need you to remind us about certain things. Keep us steady. And you're the sails. We need you because we've got to make progress in this. And that way, by the grace of God, we managed to hold practically everybody in. I lost one person who I was sort of sad about. But he loved long expositional sermons from Leviticus every Sunday, which I couldn't do. And he went to um, the Westminster Chapel, where um, he loved it every Sunday. He was, I'm fine. I lost him, but he was a, he's still a friend. He's died now, but he was a friend. Um, but everybody else stayed to see how we could get this thing working. So you need a theology. You need a model. Let's just say a model that is acceptable to the sort of people that you're attracting. And um, you need um, a practice. As I say, you need to do it. Because in many aspects of church life, certainly in the Anglican church, so forgive me if I speak only for the Anglicans, we often have a theology and we have a model. It's just that we don't do it. And that's because, what, it's now May, is it? A bit hard to introduce anything new now because the summer's coming, most people are away. And then we have Harvest Festival in autumn, then it's Christmas, that's a bit difficult. Then we have Lent after that. And the bishops usually got a book for us to study. And so it's a bit difficult to introduce anything new by then. So another year has gone by and we still haven't done it, although this is what we would do if we did it. So it's a theology and a model and a practice. And then, if, you're, if you can take three more things beginning with T, absolutely key, I think, since you asked me on this, of introducing things is that you need three things beginning with T. You need to teach. Uh, my John Collins was once asked what the secret of building a church was, and he, he said three things. Pray, pray, pray. Love, love, love. Teach, teach, teach. And most church people, I think, and I don't know, but I want to make any exceptions, really, for the churches I've seen since coming up here and retiring here in, in many, many ways, uh, are untaught, basically untaught. We assume they know far more than they do. But they're perfectly intelligent. 
perfectly capable of understanding exactly where we're going and what we're doing. We just need to teach them. This is what we're going to do. This is what the Bible says about the Spirit. This is how we're filled with the Spirit. This is us being filled with the Spirit. And this is what the Spirit is intending for us to be filled for. Because I thought one time it was for us. Then I thought perhaps it was for the church. I'm now totally convinced that it's for the world. And if you really want to see the Spirit at work, then get out into the world. Um, Jackie Puddinger, I remember telling me quite recently, actually, whenever we get stuck in our little church in Hong Kong, she was, um, we go out into the villages all over China, into the village. We send little teams, and they lay hands on everybody. Some people are healed. Some people are delivered. Some people are converted, and they come back into the church so excited. We could do that, couldn't we? Perhaps you do. Forgive me. I don't know enough about you. Go on to the estates. Take a little team. The devil will say, they don't want to see you. They do. Uh, when Annette and I left Holy Trinity, we went to North London, Tollington Park. And I was told not to go onto the um, Andover estate, which is one of the worst estates in North London. They don't want to see you. They don't want to know. The only concession I made, because that was a total lie, I wore a dog collar. Because for two reasons. One was that I was told that I might look like a plainclothes policeman otherwise. And that's apparently not a good thing to look like in, on the Andover. And the second reason was that I wanted anything that they thought was good to be associated as it should with the church. I was told they won't want to see you. Only one man said, he'd, would I mind coming back? Because he, he was too drunk to have a conversation with me. It was 10 o'clock in the morning after all. And... <laughs> I, I understood entirely, but everywhere else, oh, you're from that, which, that, oh, I wonder about that, I mean, that, I wonder about this, yeah, what time, well, I'd love to, thank you very much, thank you. and uh, if any of you are any interested in um, following that up, I, I, I was hugely impressed, moved, encouraged, taught by um, the history of the London City Mission, it's a book called Streets Paved with Gold, and London City Mission started in Hoxton, very near where we were in North London in about 1847, and uh, they, had to, they had simply, they went out visiting, visiting, visiting. Uh, we've been conditioned now to believe that visiting doesn't work. Uh, it, it works. And they said we found that the only way to the hearts of these people, because the population of London between 18 and 1800 and 1850 doubled, as some of you know, and everything broke down. The schools broke down, the sewage broke down, every social activity broke down and the church went in, into the um, into the vacuum and the ragged schools were born the hospitals were built uh, all sorts of ways the church responded the church had more money in those days because they were less taxed so I'm not being critical but the London City Mission found that the only way to reach people was to love them just to love them and to love them and to love them visit them and visit them and visit them and um, it was great Lord Shaftesbury went to see what they were doing. It's all in the book there. And he found five families living in one room on one occasion. There were four in each corner and one family in the middle. And he apparently said to the man who was showing him around, what is it like? Five families in this room? And the, the man replied, well, it was fine. He said, and really, until the family in the middle took in a lodger. He was so impressed with what the church, uh, London City Mission, cheerfully, joyfully, and um, faithfully reaching out and going out to the people that Jesus sent us. 
That, I think, I hope we would have just reconsidered by the end of the weekend, is the purpose of the church being filled with the Holy Spirit, that we may be what Jesus was sent, because he sent us, do you remember, just as the Father sent him. The Father sent him to reach the poor, the underdogs, the sick, the aim, all of that. And just as he was sent, so he's sending us. And for that, we need the Spirit. So you need three things. You need teaching, testimony. I think your, your branch is extremely good at testimony. The Anglicans have been very bad at testimonies. We sort of overlooked the power of it. It's hugely powerful. We used to have testimonies every Sunday at Holy Trinity Brompton. So much so, some of the older, not the older, some of the other members of the congregation, oh, no, yeah, we're going to go on having testimonies. As long as anybody's got something to say about what God has done with them since we last met, they're going to put them up there. Because there's one thing for a clergyman to, say, to tell the people about what God has done. You know, he's sort of paid to do that. I'm not talking about how much he's paid. I'm just talking about the fact that he is paid. Get somebody who's not paid. Put him up there and say, this is what I was, this is what I am, and it's Jesus that has made the difference. If you ever listen to Nicky Gumbo getting testimonies from Alpha, his last question is always, what difference has Jesus made to your life? Not, what did Alpha do? What did the church do? What did the pastor do? What did your friend do? What has Jesus done? Oh, Jesus has turned my life completely around. And the Spirit is working in the hearts of all the other people saying, well, he did it for him. Perhaps he can do it for me. Delivered from drink? Ah. Delivered from addictions of this kind or that kind? Set free? Hmm. Praise God. Very powerful. Teaching. Tell them where we're going, what we're doing, what the Bible says about it. Testimonies. This is what's happened to me. This is what I am. This is what Jesus made the difference. And the third thing you probably need is a bit of time. Teaching testimony time. And um, as you know, if if you're ever in a position of starting a new church, I hope you'll take to heart John Wimber's great advice, which was that most clergy, most pastors, most ministers overestimate what can be achieved in one year and underestimate what can be achieved in five. If you have the microphone twice a Sunday for five years, you can do quite a lot. Patiently loving. The rule in church life, loving and shoving. Before you know where you are, you've got as near as you can get. Uh, to the perfect church. Thanks, Andy. Oh, no, no, no. We haven't started yet. We haven't started yet. Praise God. It'd be good that you could pray for us, that. I'd love to. But the thing that you said, that um, I'd like to nestle rather than wrestle. And um, you said it's good to tell God that we love him. Shall we do that? Let's sing that song. You know, we love you, Lord. And then we, then we can sing together, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. And how about laying hands on those people around us? And we'll sing, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on you. And I'll let you then pray for us, Sandy, and we'll see where we end up. Okay. Would you like to stand? Do we know that band? Band? Yeah.
technical here. Now, I'm not sure what your tradition is. So forgive me if I get it wrong, but I encourage people to um, um, thank you very much to hold your hands out in front of you, um, if you'd like to do that. 
It's the opposite of this, which means, oh, God, I dare you to touch me tonight. I only came because of the supper. <laughs> this means, oh, Lord, I want everything you can give me. I've tried my way. I want you to fill me. And I'm going to ask him to fill you. I'd love to encourage you. Don't worry about anybody else. Just say to the Lord, Lord, thank you. Because don't forget, if you ask, you receive. Whatever you feel, whatever you think, don't worry about what you're experiencing. Just thank him. Thank him. Thank him. So let's wait on the Lord for a moment or two. Father, thank you for your promise that if we ask, we receive. And we ask, Lord, now in Jesus' name, come, Holy Spirit, come, fill us, Lord, once again. Fill us, Lord, from head to toe. Come, Holy Spirit. And let's wait on the Lord. Thank you, Lord. More of your spirit, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We receive. Thank you, Lord. I'd love to have a chance to pray with one or two of you. Uh, who I think are what um, I would call spiritually tired. Uh, and you come to a thing like this and you're thinking, oh. Jeremiah, you may remember, complained to the Lord, Lord, you deceived me. You didn't tell me it was going to be like this. I don't encourage that sort of language, but he did. Very strong language. But if you identify yourself in any way with that, things aren't going what you'd hoped spiritually. Your Bible's dry, your prayer life is whatever it is then just raise a hand. We'd love to have a chance to pray for you, if you identify in any way. Would you mind coming to the front? And, and one or two people I know will come and join with you, because the Lord's on your side. He's recommissioning you, because he loves you. Yeah, just make your way to the front. As I often say, if you can't get prayed for in a church, it's a bit difficult to know where you would get prayed for. Um, thank you. The one or two at the back there, just come and join us because the Lord is recommissioning you into His army. The devil's managed to persuade you that you're too bad, or you're too old, or you're too young, or you're too something, or something, or something, or something. It's a lie. And what the Lord is saying is, Come, come, eat and drink. And if one or two ladies will come and join us, can I ask? Annette to come and join us too. Come and pray with these yeah, people. Thank you. I want to pray for one or two of you who've got you've got a sort of sensation of that's all right. That's all right. That's all right. That's the spirit. Don't worry about that. 
Why don't you have got a sort of tingling in your hands? Just raise a hand if that's you. You felt a sort of sensation on hands. Would you mind coming to the front? Come, come to the front. It's often, I don't know if it is or not, but it's often an indication from God to remind you that he has anointed you with this particular gift of healing, to lay hands on people, lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. Now, we're all called to do that, but I think the Lord often uses this as a sign to remind us of that as an individual sign from the Lord to you, and your response is, Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's just what I need, the encouragement to go and do what you've called me to do. And if one or two people could come and join him here, we'd pray for you as well. Is there somebody here who's been asking the Lord this week for a prophetic gifting? I may be wrong, but I think there's somebody who's crying out to the Lord for a gift of some kind, a spiritual gift, a prophetic anointing or intercessory anointing or some sort of anointing. Are you here? Just raise a hand if that's you. Is that you? Could we pray for you too? Come, come in here and let's spread out. Yeah. And if one or two of you who are used to this sort of thing could join in and pray for these dear people, it would be lovely. Oops, that's all right. Let him go. Let him go. That's fine. Again, you probably are used to it, but if you're not used to it, this is perfectly normal. The Lord uses all these things. I don't know why he does things in the way he does. Sometimes it's to draw attention to what he is doing. Sometimes it's to release things, to release healing. Sometimes it's to just express encouragement and a fresh anointing, a fresh mantle of authority. And I think that's what you'll find the Lord is doing in many of you, releasing a fresh mantle of authority onto you as a spiritual minister to do the work that the Lord's called you to do. Now, if any of you has some, I don't know whether, if any of you has some sort of, I think somebody's got some physical symptom that you didn't come into the room with, but you have now, would you just raise a hand? It may be a sore head, neck, leg, inside, anything. Anybody got that? It's often an indication that you want to draw attention to somebody else and the Lord wants us to pray for they, them to be healed. It will be called a word of knowledge. And often it's, it's something you didn't come in with. You knew it's not yours. Um, a little bit more specific. It's a pain at the back of the neck. Somebody's got a sharp pain at the back of the neck. Would you raise a hand if that's you? It's a sort of whiplash thing. Anybody got a sharp pain in the back of the neck? Well, if you remember that you have, let us know. We'll pray for you. Or pray for somebody else. 